Hello and welcome to the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease podcast with me, James Nurse, a paediatrician and the social media editor at the journal. In every episode, I'm joined by one or more of our wonderful authors as they explain their papers and provide an overview of what they've been up to. So join me for this latest episode as I learn more about the complexity of cobalamine. Hello there. So we've had podcasts on classification systems, screening, single disorders and groups of conditions. But this is something of a first, a podcast dedicated to a vitamin, notably vitamin B12, as discussed in the paper, The Complex Machinery of Human Cobalamine Metabolism. And to discuss all things cobalamine, I'm delighted to welcome back Dr. Sean Froze at the Division of Metabolism and Children's Research Centre at the University Children's Hospital in Zurich. And alongside Dr. Froze, I have the king of crystallography, Dr. Wyatt Yu with the Biosciences Institute in Newcastle. Sean, welcome back. And Wyatt, I've heard you speak a number of times over the last few years. It's a pleasure to have you here on the podcast. Thanks a lot. It's a pleasure to be back. Thanks, James. Thanks, Sean. Pleased to be here. Right. So there are so many vitamins. I'm sure that everyone has their favorites. What's all this fuss about B12? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's something truly fascinating about vitamin B12, and there's so many aspects that make it unique. It's it's the largest vitamin found in nature. It has similarities to Hume and to chlorophyll, but it's much larger, and it's the only example we have of a natural compound with a cobalt-carbon bond. It is this central cobalt bond which makes B12 so useful, actually. It's the interplay between the oxidation state of the cobalt and the number of bonds that it can make that make it a supernucleophile and such a useful cofactor, especially for these very difficult rearrangement reactions which are required in nature, but not easy to synthesize. So the synthesis of vitamin B12 actually takes more than 20 enzymatic steps. And it's so energetically costly that there's only a handful of bacteria and archaea which are able to do this or even bother to do these reactions. Yet nevertheless, its utility is so important that after, in evolution, there have been so many other organisms which have then made themselves dependent on B12 and actually to scavenge it from these different bacteria or archaea. And humans are one of these. And it's so important that there's complex mechanisms which are also required for the scavenging. In fact, in humans, there's more than 20 processing steps which are required, even though B12 has already been made by bacteria or archaea. So not only is the, the molecule, vitamin B12, extremely fascinating, but also the history of B12 discovery is also fascinating. Almost 100 years ago, so back in 1926, George Minot and William Murphy, they showed that this disease, pernicious anemia, which is now known to be caused by the inability to absorb vitamin B12, could be treated by giving patients 100 grams of raw or lightly cooked liver every day. So as long as the patients were able to stomach such a horrible diet, uh, and some of them actually could do so for more than a year, they were cured, which was incredible work. And for this, they were actually awarded a Nobel Prize in Medicine. Three years later, it was William Castle, and he showed that pernicious anemia wasn't actually caused by this um, missing something that was extrinsic, but rather they were missing something intrinsic to the body, so which he called intrinsic factor. And to prove this, instead of giving patients raw liver, he gave healthy volunteers a high-protein meal. After 45 minutes, he made them regurgitate this high-protein meal, and he fitted through a nasogastric tube into the patients with pernicious anemia. This was actually just as effective as raw liver, thus proving that he was correct. It was an intrinsic factor which was missing. Uh, it could be that the patients wish they were back on the raw liver instead. <laughs> but interesting Interestingly enough, maybe because of this work was slightly grotesque, William Castle was not awarded a Nobel Prize in medicine for his work. But 30 years later, in 1956, Dorothy Hodgkin was given a purified version of what was in the liver extract, and this was the molecule, vitamin B12. And using a brand new technology at the time called X-ray crystallography, then she actually was able to solve the structure of B12 and was indeed also awarded a Nobel Prize this time in chemistry in 1964. 
So B12 is a fascinating molecule and its history is really tied to that of structural biology. And I think that's why we're so interested. Well, we won't get stuck debating which is tastier between regurgitated food or raw liver. <laughs> Wyatt, we started talking about crystallography there at the end. From what I know of your work, you're very interested in the structure of things. What's so interesting about this in relation to B12? So by structure of things here, I think, uh, James, we are referring to the 3D shapes of molecules in life, be they big, like proteins and enzymes, or small, like what Sean described in terms of the B12 cofactor. So structural biology is the field that I myself am in, and it's a field all about determining protein structures and shapes and what we call them as structures. And we do it by using methods and techniques called protein crystallography, or more recently called cryoelectron microscopy. Regarding B12, Sean referred to the utility and reactivity of this cofactor. But the fact of the matter is that we're talking about a total of two client enzymes in the human genome that uses this B12 cofactor. One of the enzymes is known as MMUT, or we call it mutase. It is an enzyme in the mitochondria. It uses a particular form of the B12, which has an adenosyl group attached. And this form of B12 is often known as the um, adenosyl cobalamin. The other enzyme is called MTR, also known as methionine synthase. It's in the cytosol. It uses another B12 form, in this case, with a methyl group attached. And this form of B12 is often known as methylcobalamin. So to serve the cofactor needs for these two client enzymes, human has really evolved quite a complicated and a huge army of proteins. Our last count is probably over 20, including transporters, enzymes, and chaperones. And you can think of them as serving at different stations or surface stations for the journey of B12, from its uptake outside the cell into the cell where um, the processing of these adenosyl or methyl groups take place, and then also into the delivery of the B12 cofactor to the client enzymes. And if we circle back to what I've been talking about in terms of protein shapes, it probably comes as not much of a surprise that these client enzymes and proteins involved in this B12 journey must have similar ways or shapes that allow them to carry, to hold the B12, but they must be also really quite different enough to allow them to, to be positioned at the different stations and carry out their distinct roles. Yeah. So it is these nuances in protein shapes or structures, which is what fascinates the structural biologists such as myself. And I suppose you've started to talk about this army of proteins involved in the journey of, of B12. And that's what your paper sort of takes us through, this life cycle of cobalamin from its intake through its absorption and different aspects of its utilization and how those different steps also relate to different metabolic disorders. If we begin at the beginning, it seems that even getting B12 into the body is a challenge, not not precluding the need to eat all this raw liver. Yeah, certainly. I mean, already to go from food stuff to cellular entry is, is quite a process. So typically, as you mentioned, B12 enters the body via foodstuffs. Usually it's bound to protein as part of sort of a meat or dairy products. Of course, it can be liver, it can be regurgitated <laughs> food from healthy individuals, depending on how you want to get it in. And then basically as the protein that is bound to the B12 is degraded, let's say after 45 minutes, then that bound B12 is released inside the stomach. And inside the stomach, actually, there's two other proteins, integral proteins, which are made. Uh, one of them is haptocorin and the other is this sort of famous intrinsic factor. 
factor. It seems like in the stomach, actually haptocorin binding is preferred. What it's doing is not so clear, but it seems to be working as a protector, maybe to stop B12 from being degraded, especially chemically degraded with the acidic content of the stomach. After it makes its way into the small intestine, then haptocorin is actually replaced by intrinsic factor. So haptocorin itself is degraded and intrinsic factor takes over. And then in the specific part of the small intestine called the ileum, then it's B12 that's specifically bound to intrinsic factor, which is actually able to enter the mucosal cells there. Uh, those cells ship it across into the blood. It gets rid of the intrinsic factor, allows it to be free B12. And the free B12 can also bind to proteins, but the more important of which is transcobalamin. And it's this transcobalamin bound B12, which is actually the form that's available to most of the cells in the body. And after endocytosis, the, the journey of this little molecule, or this big big vitamin, it's a little molecule, is far from over. And, and here there are even more things that can and, and do go wrong. I mean, there are always things that can go wrong, right? Um, but I guess here you're specifically talking about the transport of vitamin B12. Once it's inside the cell, uh, it's in actually in, in the lysosome and it needs to get into the cytosol. And back before we knew, I mean, which proteins were involved, we always assumed this would be catalyzed by a single protein, which would be a single transporter. So when Frank Rutsch and his colleagues described the protein LMBD1, and that deficiency of B12 getting from the lysosome into the cytosol was caused by this lack of LMBD1. We were all quite shocked, I would say, because LMBD1 doesn't look like a transporter at all. So we were maybe probably slightly less shocked than when David Coelho and his colleagues identified a second protein in the lysosome. And this was a transporter called ABCD4. It's surprising for us that there are two disorders linked to this disease or two proteins required to transport vitamin B12 from the lysosome to the cytosol, but this seems to be the case. Uh, the role of LMBD1 remains somewhat unclear. Uh, we currently believe it's a sort of chaperone for ABCD4, targeting it to the lysosome, protecting it from degradation by the lysosome. And ABCD4 is, itself is the transporter. I, I say that uh, ABCD4 being the transporter of vitamin B12 from the lysosome to the cytosol, I think that's quite well accepted in the vitamin B12 community. And there's good clinical and biochemical evidence for this to be the case. It's quite a bit less accepted in the structural community, I would say, because if you look at the structure of ABCD4, which has been solved by cryoEM, as Wyatt mentioned, then it does look like a transporter, but it looks like it should actually be transporting vitamin B12 the other way around. So it should go from the cytosol into the lysosome. And currently, there's no way that we can reconcile the structure um, with this presumed function. And this is one of the many amazing questions left for us to solve in vitamin B12 metabolism. I mean, I presume you two are part of different communities. If uh, Sean, are you B12 and, and why are you the, uh, the structural community? You're not going to fall out over this, I hope. <laughs> so far, we haven't come to blows yet. <laughs> well, that's good. And as you can imagine, structural biology sort of showing you pictures and snapshots is really a glimpse of tip of the iceberg of more complex pictures and mechanism. And I think different type of data will continue to converge and then hopefully will resolve in some ways. Well, that's, that's what we hope, because I mean, it, it just gets more complicated after that. The scobalamin in the cytosol, and then it's all about these abbreviations, the MMACHC, the MMADHC and MTR. I'm getting a bit lost. Yeah, and also MTRR, not to forget. And it is indeed quite a mouthful. And I think much of the nomenclature also reflect um, how some of these genes and associated proteins were first uncovered through mapping a group of these Mendelian inherited conditions known as um, methamelone aciduria MMA and homocysteinuria HC, as the community in, in JIMD is very well known, how these disorders are mapped to the different associated steps in the B12 journey. 
So as you can tell from what Sean described, you would have imagined that the work is probably done when B12 goes through this arduous journey inside the cell. But it's not only not over, it also feels like it has just started because once inside the cytosome, B12 will then be first stripped of any attached adenosyl or methyl modifying group, first by this enzyme called MMACHC. And I think one of the aim for this is to ensure that all the B12 that has been taken in can be maximized for use by either of the client enzymes without sort of prior judgment of which one they should be loaded. And if you remember, there's one enzyme using B12 in the mitochondria and one enzyme using B12 in the cytosome. So there's always this question, how, how is the B12 being rooted to serve these two destinations? And it is still not very understood, I think. And I think we believe that then the next protein called MMADHC is really acting at this traffic junction. When we determine the structure of um, MMADHC together with Sean's group, we find that it is looking actually in many ways very similar in shape to the protein I just mentioned previously, MMACHC. But instead, it does not carry B12 itself. It does not have any enzymatic activity like MMACHC. So I think the current guess is that MMADHC is acting as a chaperone to escort MMACHC that has been carrying the B12 so that it can then retain either in the cytosome or in the mitochondria. So now, if the traffic light stays green for remaining in the cytosome, then this B12, remember it has this modifying group removed, this B12 will now be loaded onto the cytosome client enzyme, which is called MTR or methylene synthase. And this enzyme always fascinates me a lot because it's truly a multitasking Swiss army knife in that it has four modules allowing it to carry out very different functionalities. So bear in mind that MTR uses the B12 cofactor in the methylated form. So you can imagine there's one module that will take in a cofactor called methyl tetrahydrofolate and then donate this methyl group from the tetrahydrofolate to the B12 in the second module. And remember, this B12 has just been loaded onto the enzyme. Then B12 will then donate this recently added methyl group to the third module, which in fact carries out the enzymatic reaction of MTR by donating the methyl group to homocysteine to be converted then to methylene. So I've described the first module, second module, and the third module here. But this is not just it, because somehow anticipating that there will be this rare occurrence that every few thousand cycles of these transfer reactions, the B12 cofactor, or more specifically, the cobalt metal central to this B12 cofactor will somehow go off. So there comes the fourth final module, which together partnering with another protein called MTRR, will help to regenerate the B12 cobalt metal, which can then receive the methyl group once again from methyl tetrahydrofolate and can then donate to homocysteine once again for its catalysis. It is really quite complex, and you can imagine if a protein has these different modules, there must be lots of movement or dynamics or what I imagine gymnastics going on even within one single protein. Unfortunately, uh, much of 
the structural information or the shapes of the human MTR or MTRR are not known, but yet a great deal of insight has already been drawn from a lot of bacterial seminal studies. So hopefully one day um, the mystery of the human structures will be solved and we will be able to understand how MTR and MTRR work together in this highly complex pathway. And as a slight sort of tangent there, when you say we're hoping to solve these one day, the practicalities of identifying or seeing these structures within cells, theoretically, how would one even manage to do that? Yeah, I think you pinpointed very well that we, of course, in the field know how to look at structures from a very static manner. And here, we believe that a static structure or a static picture might not tell a lot of stories because the way I hope I have conveyed the message that even within this protein itself, it has to have lots of movement and a lot of different interactions and a lot of different reactions in it. And this is always going to create a challenge because if you have a homogeneous sample for such type of biophysical or structural work, you are therefore limited to confining to one or two state that you can look at. But if you want to then capture the multivarious states of a certain protein enzyme, then you're bound to have a heterogeneous sample, which by itself is not a good sample for some of these studies. So it's always a dilemma, but I hope one day we will convince you that um, the field is improving and is growing to the direction that more heterogeneous, more complex samples are going to be able to be elucidated. Thank you. Sorry, it's just fascinating to hear how it how it all works. And we still got one more sort of enzyme to talk about, and it's this role in the mitochondria with with MMUT or mutase, which is something that we've obviously talked about before, Sean. And that's when it it finally gets its look in in this life cycle. Yeah, yeah, we certainly did talk about that. So, so last time we talked at length, I think, about how cells try to metabolically compensate for the lack of mutase function. And here we can talk more about like how does the cell allow mutase to function at all. And for it to do so, then it needs this cofactor form of B12 called adenosylcobalamin. And there are two proteins within the mitochondria which are necessary to make this happen or necessary to make this cofactor. One of them is MMAB, which is associated with the um, CBLB deficiency. And the other is MMAA, which is associated with CBLA deficiency. And if you think in terms of disease, then deficiency of mutase itself or MMAA or MMAB, these are all what we would consider to be classical isolated methylmonic aciduria. And differences in the disease may be in terms of the degree of severity or, or the onset of symptoms. In terms of biochemistry, then the role of MMAB is really clear. So it is the enzyme that physically adds an adenosyl group onto the B12 or the cobalamin in order to make the adenosyl cobalamin cofactor. And it does this by stealing the adenosyl group from an ATP molecule. So very obvious, very clear role, very well described when this enzyme doesn't function properly, what is actually going wrong. A slightly less clear enzyme is this MMAA enzyme. Um, so what we think it does is actually sort of a guardian role for the mutase enzyme so that if there are other B12 forms other than specifically adenosylcobalamin, then MMAA does not allow those to be implemented onto the mutase enzyme. Likewise, as Wyatt described with MTR, if something goes wrong with the B12 cofactor within mutase, then it's the role of MMAA to kick it out and allow a new cofactor to be implemented. And 
we know about these roles actually mainly from structural work in bacteria, as why described in MTR, and really specifically with seminal work done by the groups of Ruma Banerjee and Catherine Drennan, both of whom, like, they're still, even last week, are making, like, seminal discoveries in this field. We have reason to believe that the human enzymes have, like, small differences in how they assemble compared to the bacterial enzymes. But we think that these small differences actually translate to quite large differences in terms of in vivo how they function and what proteins they're associated with. And I think here again, there's a lot of room for discovery and even understanding of like disease symptoms and future treatments with these small differences on how these proteins themselves assemble and which other proteins they interact with. So it seems like as, as with so many of the topics that are discussed in the podcast, there's a lot that we know, but there's a lot that we don't know as well. You've managed to take us on this whistle-stop tour of the role of cobalamin and the incredible variety of metabolic disorders that can arise from when it's not doing what it's supposed to do. But this work is first and foremost about structural biology and the insights that this gives us. How has the evolution of this field altered our understanding of medicine and, and where does it take us? James, that's a great question. As a structural biologist, we believe that the shape of these big molecules tells us a great deal of how it functions and also why it malfunctions. And over the years, I also have come to appreciate that the shape of an enzyme is a really dynamic concept, which changes all the time when it functions and also when it malfunctions. So I'm really surprised by how plastic an enzyme is when it comes to sort of shape shifting. And in fact, this is also a very exciting concept in being exploited in human medicine. And I think the concept of protein changing shape or dynamics can advance human medicine in two ways. Firstly, it visualizes how mutations such as those associated with inherited metabolic disorders here change the shape of an enzyme that will allow us to understand in part the molecular cause of the disease. And secondly, I think understanding protein shapes also helps the development of small molecule drugs, many of which act on the protein itself by fitting into its shape to cause a rescue or, or cause a regulation. And in fact, this idea of a small molecule drug fitting into the bigger molecule, what we call a target, is the mechanism of action for these drugs in the market. And, and how do you see the the future of the field evolving? So I hope through this conversation, um, we all will come to appreciate that the structure of an enzyme is indeed like a picture. It's really worth a thousand words and it's telling the story of its function, its mechanism, and also the therapeutic potential. But how does the future hold? I imagine two things. First, imagine that you no longer have just a picture which is static, but instead you can have a more dynamic view yeah, and no longer a static snapshot. I think these days what we do is we have ways to take more composite pictures and then you have ways to piece them together to build this cartoon animation or more of a dynamic view to look at these shape shifting or the different reactions in, in, in the protein. And secondly, imagine you no longer can only take a single protein portrait, not a lonesome protein on its own, but instead now a group photo 
or hopefully a group video um, to show the interrelationships of these proteins together. I think that this is really a great direction and a very amazing direction um, for the understanding of the players in the B12 journey, as Sean and myself have tried to describe in this very brief section that um, they really act together and, and help each other. And therefore, a group photo or a group video would do justice in explaining them. And I call these imaginations. But I think they're being realized now by some cutting edge methods, one of which is called crowd electron microscopy, which we touch on. And this is also coupled by other very, very important methods and technologies in terms of sample preparations. And that allow us to bring these different protein players together um, in order to assemble them into a group photo. And we call these protein complexes. And these technologies very often referred to as proteomics or mass spectrometry, or other interaction studies. It feels like we need those photos from Harry Potter where everything moves rather than staying still. <laughs> Absolutely. Great. I'm not, not sure that falls within the budget of the JAMD to publish those, but I'll, um, I'll have a word with the editors. Please do. And Sean, have you got anything to add? Yeah, I mean, so why I talked about the, the future of structural biology, perhaps as a whole, and, and I wanted to come back to what's the future of B12 metabolism. And, and it's really amazing to me, like, despite the many advances and the wealth of knowledge that we now have and sort of described in this paper, it, it's incredible how many things we still don't know and how many fundamental things we still don't know. I highlighted the ABCD4 conundrum of how can it transport B12 out of the lysosome when it should be actually putting it back in. But there are many other examples of things that we don't know. Why it highlighted the MMA-DHC protein and when it has a green light to stay in the cytosol, it keeps or moves B12 to MTR. But actually, we don't know what controls this light. So what makes it green? What makes it yellow? What makes it red? And I think this is really a fundamental question for us. So when is B12 kept in the cytosol? When is it transported to the mitochondria? How does it get into the mitochondria at all? These are all really fundamental questions, which we don't know. And I think we're quite excited to see how does the future of the field evolve there and what are going to be the new discoveries in B12 metabolism there. Okay. Well, as always, I think when you find out more, I'd love to hear about it. Um, I'm exceptionally grateful to both of you for your time. And I'd certainly urge anyone listening to go and look at the paper, not least because it includes these incredible images that have been put together to present those structures you've been talking about, albeit in a static form. Um, you can find the paper by clicking the link in the podcast description or by going to the journal web pages and searching for complex machinery and cabalamine. All that remains is for me to say thank you, Wyatt and Sean, for speaking with me this morning. Thanks a lot for having us. Pleasure to be here. Thanks. And uh, we're all off to eat some liver. So um, thanks for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.